Hey everyone, just wanted to let you know that we had a great talk with Steve Jones Jr. this week, but the audio was a little rough. We had a hard time getting a good connection, so it's a, it breaks up a little bit more than we would have liked to. There's so many good nuggets of information and wisdom in there that we wanted to make sure that it still got out. So thanks for your patience, and we will look forward to producing more uh, podcasts for you all in the future. Thanks so much for listening. Hey, what's up, Blazer fans? Welcome to the Blazer's Edge podcast. I'm Tara Bowen Biggs, joined as always by Blazer's outsider, Danny Morang. Holy, holy. Hello, Dan. Uh, we are very <laughs> happy to welcome a guest in today. We've got Steve Jones Jr., who's a former video coordinator for the Memphis Grizzlies, also an assistant coach for the Brooklyn Nets. And for Blazer fans, you may know him. Um, his name might sound familiar to you because he is the son of legendary Blazers broadcaster, Steve Snapper Jones. Steve, welcome to the podcast. Well, uh, well, thank you very much for having me on. I appreciate you guys. I'm excited to talk. Well, uh, one of the things that I love about following you on Twitter is how much I learned from your very detailed video breakdowns um, in these legendary threads that you make. But And I'm going to ask you a bunch of questions about that. But before we get there, I think Blazer fans would love to know a little bit more about what it was like growing up um, with Snapper Jones as your dad. Well, it was a great experience. You know, obviously having... I was pretty much born into Blazer fandom um, with him working there for 26 years. I, I think the biggest thing for me was just how passionate he was towards the city, towards the organization. So sometimes I got lost in, trans uh, lost in uh, translation there. I think just the biggest thing for me was just learning so much from him about the game of basketball, um, not just from obviously speaking with him, but just watching him on commentary he would always give you information whether you wanted to hear it or not, whether it was good or bad. You'd, you, the hope from him was that you would walk away having learned something about the game. And, you know, the biggest thing that he taught me was just not just to look at the result, but to admire the process and ask those questions. Why did they do that? What were they trying to do? Was that a good shot or not? You know, questions I didn't really have the answers to and still really don't, but I'm working on it. <laughs> um, it was just a blast to, to be able to um, enjoy that and enjoy my team and hear my dad call it, and it was it was great. Did you have the opportunity to ever like be around the team or um, you know while your dad was uh, on the shows? I did, but I, I never really wanted to. I was the weird kid in that sense. You didn't want to. Uh, I just wanted to. <laughs> When your dad is a legend in the city, you embrace that. But I also just wanted to like not use that as something that works for me, if that makes sense. It's hard to explain, but I always just lived life. Like I, I didn't really bother. As long as I had tickets I could watch, I was good. <laughs> Do you have uh, you know particular favorite players that you enjoyed watching, or even you as a you know you went on to play basketball in college? You know, anybody who you uh, wanted to emulate? My all-time favorite blazer, and it's always controversial, was Rasheed Wallace. So right around that age, I was about 12, 13. I would always try and emulate his shot. So it's close fadeaway. Um, and obviously, you know, I loved Clyde, Terry, Jerome, Buck Williams, Sabonis, 
and this goes on and on, but the guy I always stuck with and rode for the hardest was Rashid, um, which wasn't always the easiest thing to do in Portland at times, but that was my guy. So you said that your dad kind of taught you, uh, you know, how to watch the game, asking you, you know, questions that still have you thinking all these many years later. Later, and obviously you are a student of the game. Thinking back over, you know, all the years that basketball, you know, you've been watching basketball. Have you seen significant changes to the way the game is being played, like the game itself on the court? Yeah, the game is constantly evolving, which is why. When I look at the film, I always find it funny when people try to make it black and white. There's a lot of gray in basketball. Um, you take a look at just in the last 10, 15 years, post-ups were meant for bids who could score, and now teams are throwing in the post so they can run other action, get their shooters going, cutting action, and, and really as a piece of their offense instead of a centerpiece. Um, you've got bids who can shoot, bids who can hand off the dribble, bids that are coming off screens. Um, Cheat sheet, catch and shoot. Like that, that was the things you saw um, five, ten years ago. You're seeing more pick and roll. You're seeing more teams play with pace. You're seeing more zone thrown in the league. So some of these outliers that have kind of picked up steam, it keeps going. Now, the funny part about basketball, and it's kind of cyclical, and it's a little bit of a copycat league. So you're going to see people try and emulate success. You're going to see things that maybe aren't being done now be put back into play, and the cycle will continue. With that, Steve, uh, I, I want to ask you something real quick because um, this is something that I, I kind of believe to be true. You talked about how the, the post game used to be as a function for scoring, but now it's work. And, and then it kind of evolved more into a facilitation role. But it looks like, especially with the way free agency and everything went and, the, and what teams are targeting, that teams are looking to go bigger again. Do you think that's something that's going to come full circle where we're going to see – kind of uh, the reemergence of the big man inside like we haven't seen in basically 15, 20 years? I think that bids are very valuable. They're just valuable in a different way. So when you look back at the playoffs, a lot of teams played two big guys. Mm-hmm. You know, I think Denver off the top of my head, no sapping Jokic. Portland even threw out Myers and Collins a few times. Teams aren't afraid to play two big, two big guys at the same time it's just about the skill sets and if they match up and what kind of value do they have. Can you screen? Can you shoot? Can you make a play? Can you roll to the rim? Can you defend? So that, when you're big, those are the things you're probably going to be asked to do. So I'm not surprised that teams are trying to get bigs because that's going to give you more size. It should, if they have the right skill set, give you some flexibility defensively. Um, I think it's going to be tough for that big to return as far as just straight up post-ups, but someone's going to do it. It's going to come back in style and teams are going to double and we'll go right back to where we were, even if it's a little bit tweaked, a little bit different. Um, another thing to your point is teams will use post-ups if they have a mismatch, especially with small lineups and the teams are switching. They'll go ahead and post you up. You remember that Denver series, no set, did some work down there in the post. So teams aren't afraid to throw it down there. It's just mm-hmm. got to be the right function. It's got to be something that puts pressure on defenses. Interesting, you talked about you know the 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 game evolving because one of the things that I wonder about is is it truly evolving faster or is it evolving because or is, does it just seem like that because people are talking about it more? 
Do you have any thoughts about that or any way, like, because, you know, now everyone's looking at the analytics and teams have analytics departments and they make changes based on what they see there. Do you think that the pace of the way the game is changing is speeding up because of that? I think it's a combination of two things. I think there's more data. I think there's more numbers. And I think the successful teams have had a certain style. So not everyone's trying to be the Warriors or what the Warriors were, but they are trying to play in that ballpark. So you're seeing more teams running and giving up early shots and playing in transition and playing out of pick and roll and using small lineups. So it's a little bit copycat in that sense where there's not a lot of teams that are going to walk the ball up, which means if you're a team that can play in the half court in transition, you're going to end up being better in the long run than a team who can just get up and down. Um, so it evolves in the sense that different teams are having different success in different ways. I think everyone's kind of playing the same style to start the game uh, in transition, but now you've got to have some meat behind it. You've got to have a punch behind it, especially as the season continues and get to the postseason, where now your lineups matter. Now where your your superstars matter, your duo matters. Um, so I think the game is evolving in the sense that you can't just come down in half court, call a play out, and have success every single time. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And you brought up duos, and I've got some questions about the the Blazers, Blazers duo, Lillard and McCollum. But before we get to that, I got one last question about sort of the game in general. The, you know, I think one of the biggest changes that people can pretty easily recognize is the dependence on threes and the Mori ball type, you know, way everybody's either at the basket or from the three-point line. Do you think that the mid-range is is ever gonna like become not important or like what are your thoughts on where the mid-range is going to go next are you guys trying to rope me into a mid-range is dead conversation <laughs> no i'm she wondering. is i am I'm not just wondering what you think about it <laughs> i'm a mid-range <laughs> truther man <laughs> well um, we're joking. gonna talk about no. cj mccollum so i'm hoping that you're gonna think that it's gonna be around but <laughs> <laughs> There's a misconception around the mid-range jump shot. The mid-range jump shot is alive. You just can't use the one that was really, really heavily used in 2003 or 2005. So the mid-range jump shot these days is a really good counter uh, to defenses who are keeping their bigs in the paint and back and pick and roll. It's an easy two-double jump shot. Um, You need to have that mid-range jumper in your back pocket to be able to have something, if they're protecting the paint, if they've taken away your three, you can take a pull-up jumper. And if that jumper is being given to you, like most teams do in pick and roll, that's going to force that defense to adjust and bring that big a little bit higher, not just for a three-pointer, but for a mid-range jump shot. So the mid-range jumper is not dead. It's just how you use it. Um, tough cues are something that likely are being eliminated. So you're not going to see a guy just come up and catch at the elbow and fire away um, from the mid-range. I don't think those are the shots that people want. I don't think those are the shots that are most valuable. But an open mid-range jump shot isn't bad. You know, taking a long two isn't terrible. To me, I, I look more at the shot quality than the range of where it's at. So a guy like C.J. McCollum, if you tell him he comes off a ball screen and he's wide open and he pulls up, or he pulls up on a defender just like he did in the Denver series, that's not a bad shot to me. If you, if you can make that, 
go ahead and take it because that's going to keep the defense off balance. Now they don't know if you're driving. They don't know if you're going to pull up from mid-range, or they don't know if you're going to pull up from three. It just makes it gives you more versatility in your attack as a player. Yeah, it seems to me like it just it adds a third place that people that defenses have to worry about. Like if really if people were truly just taking from threes and at the basket, then there's like a whole area that they don't have to worry about. But if you've got a mid-range shooter, you got to spend time thinking about how you're gonna how you're gonna deal with that. How you're gonna deal with CJ McCollum when he gets in there. Let's turn to CJ and Damian Lillard. There's been a lot of talk about duos in the league, especially uh, after this offseason where a lot of pairing up has been going on. The Blazers have had uh, their own duo in Lillard and McCollum for several years now. Can you talk about what you see as their strengths and weaknesses as a as a duo? Uh, the strengths are obviously both guys can score, both guys can make plays. You can run an offense with them in different spots. They can come off screens. They can come off players. Something that Coach Sachs does really well. So it's not a very predictable offense when you have both of them um, that you have to worry about in different areas, whether it's in transition, whether it's in the half court, have the ball in their hands, whether off the ball. That's a really good mix right there, especially when it's your two best players being able to do that. Um, as far as weaknesses go, it's not necessarily weaknesses about them. We addressed this a little bit this offseason, but it's been weaknesses about the team around them. So, you know, they're going to need some size. They're going to need some shots around them um, because defenses are going to pay attention to them, whether it's late before or it's in the playoffs. Those defenses are locking on those two and trying to make one of them effective and hope that's going to get it done. So I don't really see major weaknesses in their games. Uh, I see it more as they have to have the right team around them to hit that next level, if that makes sense. Speaking of, of weaknesses here, Steve, uh, real quick, the, one of the things that was a hill that I kind of died on uh, up until really a couple of years ago was that you had to be a two-way player in this league. Um, and while I love the Dame CJ backcourt, I never thought that it could really elevate itself beyond kind of what their success was last year, which is a, a conference finals team because of the lack of size and the lack of defensive versatility in the backcourt. When you, when you look at these duos around the league and you look at the Blazers and you look at how the league's currently being run, how much more valuable in your mind is it to be able to get a bucket as opposed to being a stopper, a Tony Allen type uh, in today's NBA? In today's NBA, more valuable to be able to get a basket. Uh, it doesn't mean there's not value for defensive players and there's not ways that teams can integrate them and use them offensively um, so where they're not a liability on the other end. But you look at, and I'll just pull this example out of up thin air, the Warriors during that whole run, the main Achilles heel was we're going to put Steph Curry in pick and roll because we know you guys don't want to switch. And if you do switch, you guys have a mismatch. They never fix that. <laughs> Did they ever fix that or figure out exactly what they wanted to do with him defensively? It still didn't matter. Like, they still wrote, obviously, for different reasons. So you can build a defense around guys who may, quote-unquote, be limited or um, may have size mismatches. You just got to be smart about how you're doing it. Um, so I think two-way players are still very valuable, don't get me wrong. But if you're talking about, at the end of the day, 
those two being able to get baskets and what they bring to the table offensively, you're always going to take that over what you have to handle on the defensive end. Um, it, it, it really feels like teams really try to exploit those two in a way where it was like, uh-oh, I, I'm not sure what they're going to do here. I think if you can get creative with your lineups and get creative with your schemes, you can kind of work around that. How do you? How would you have gone about trying to fix that with the with the personnel that they had at the time? And then we can transition into the personnel that the Blazers have now because they've made a lot of changes over the offseason. Well, the idea was you have Harkless and Amini to be able to balance that out on defense. And the problem with that was, one, they would either get into a mismatch themselves, or two, they'd be a liability on the other end. And so the ultimate goal to me is, you just can't be a complete liability on either end in this league. Does that make sense, Gus? Mm-hmm. You can't be someone. And like the, the, the playoffs showed that for Harkless and Amina. And they brought a lot to the table. They were great in the locker room. But Denver, Golden State, did not guard them. Mm-hmm. Didn't care what they did on offense. They were going to help uh, on any pick and roll. They were going to give that attention to Damon CJ. And they're going to live with whatever those guys did offensively. And ultimately, in my opinion, that lack of versatility in lineups for Portland, they just couldn't really hit that next level. Because at some point, they were going to find that team and say, that's okay, but we're either going to score on those guys or we're going to let them cheat. You know what I mean? Yeah, so it wasn't so much that there was anything that they could have done. They were limited with the personnel that they had. Is that what you're saying? To me, it was tough. I mean, they tried all sorts of different things, but eventually you had to play those guys, you know, for defense or <laughs> and eventually the other team would just say, okay, go ahead and shoot. What are you going to do on the other end? Well, as Hassan Whiteside said, the Blazers have shooters. Uh, <laughs> so what do you think about, you know, I guess the re-signing of Hood? We'll see more of that. The addition of Baysmore, Hazonia, uh, you know, the emergence of Anthony Simons. Do you think, uh, do you see any of this uh, helping with what you identified as, you know, kind of um, the trouble that uh, Damon CJ were looking at last year? Yes, I think it does a lot to them offensively. The uh, defense, I'm curious about. We can talk about that after. But I think what you have is the ability to have lineup versatility. So you've added more size on the wing. Um, you're able to keep Robin Hood, who obviously has success in the system, and his chemistry with those guys now. Uh, you add Bazemore, uh, who's solid, uh, has the ability to make shots, to make plays, to cut. Um, you add a Hazonia, uh, so that's a talented wing. You've gotten to see a little in the draft. I think <laughs> Anthony being able to finally get a huge opportunity is going to be good for them. And then you add Anthony Tolliver, which is really the skill set that the Blazers needed. you got a Six seven six eight guy, a big who can pick and pop and space the floor. That allows you to come with a lot more combinations and try a lot more things um, late in games. You can go with four guards and maybe a big. You can go with uh, a couple wings and, and you know change things up. So now if game or CJ, then you've got some height with them. You've got some size um, when you stagger your rotation. So to me, offensively, I love what they did. Um, going forward and getting some more versatility, getting deeper at the wing and being able to have guys who work in that system and work with their two best players. 
Now, the flip side of this, obviously, is the defensive side of it. And Portland's going to go through a transition that they haven't gone through since LaMarcus Aldridge left in free agency, and they kind of retooled the team around Dame and CJ. Um, they're going to start three new guys. Uh, obviously, Nurk's going to be out until at least February. Uh, you got Whiteside in there, who I think is somebody you can kind of count on in a sense uh, as far as like box score production. Rodney Hood has been a starter in this league before and been successful with Utah. Um, to me, the big question mark is is Zach Collins and getting a box score production. Like the 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 intangibles are there. The ability to to move his feet and cover defensively on the perimeter, work as a weak side weak side shot blocker. But when you're talking about in today's NBA and you're talking about playing two bigs, when you're looking at a young guy stepping into a starting role for the first time, what are the things that you're looking at from a guy like Collins, kind of to start the season and and, and going forward and replacing Al Farouk Aminu? For Collins, it's all going to be about consistency. Uh, I thought he had a really great playoff run. He did everything he was asked to do. Now it's going to be doing that every single night. Um, I think with that lineup, say hypothetically, he was the four. He doesn't have to do a lot. <laughs> you know, be a screener, be good on defense, hit some open shots, be a roller, be a threat. I think his role is going to be handling those intangibles. And I feel like that's something he can do, and it's not going to put a ton of pressure on him. Now, the flip side is going to be, you talked about the box score production. Will his numbers pop like they would if he were to come off the bench? They might not pop as much. Um, Obviously, he may take a leap, and I could be wrong. But I think if he's able to be solid, be consistent, roll on the defensive end, be able to space the floor offensively, that gives the Blazers a whole new different look. because now you can play him at the four, you can play him at the five as well um, and kind of move things around. But it's going to be interesting to see his growth because if he plays at the four, he may have to guard some friends of that. Um, you know, he may have to be asked to do more defensively, uh, you know, than just showing a pick and roll help on the weak side. So it's going to be an interesting challenge, but he's going to be asked to do a lot on that end to tie things together. While we're kind of on the topic of bigs, one of the things that uh, keeps me up at night is that, the, <laughs> <laughs> and it, it truly does, um, I worry about a lot of things, um, The with the turnover in the personnel and also kind of just starting with the injury to Nurk, one of the things that I really enjoy watching with this team are the way that the big men and the guards work together with the guards setting screens, uh, creating space that way for for the guards. So CJ can run around, so Dame can run around, you know, just creating a lot of opportunities by their screen setting. And then Nurk went down and then the Blazers traded away Myers Leonard. And like Dan and I have talked about time like Myers Leonard maybe didn't play a whole bunch last year but there were times when he would get in the game and he would set screen after screen after screen and both Damian and CJ you know had much more room to operate because of that they've got new centers they're going to have to learn how to do this with like how hard is that to incorporate um you know new players in in those parts of the game as opposed to just like here's the play what we're going to do but like teaching them like you know how uh, how how to screen effectively for specific players. Very interesting point. I think, first off, the concern you had is the major reason why they went out and got Hassan Whiteside. Um, because of his ability to play in the pick and roll and be a threat that way. That's the biggest piece of his game that defenses are worried about. So I think by adding 
adding him, you're able to maintain a little bit of continuity as far as having a pick and roll threat from last year, even with not going down, and, and you can continue to build off that. Now, to your second piece as far as there's going to be an adjustment period. You know, pick and roll is a lot about chemistry and being able to know what that uh, guard is going to do with how that defense is playing them. You know, do I need to roll all the way? Do I need to short roll? And try and stay in the pocket, get a little quick pass. Do I need to screen? Do I slip? You know, those things are going to take time for the Blazers to kind of figure out and get that chemistry right. But I do think that they have a, a few guys who can replicate some of that success. I think you can have Hassan as a really good screener. Defenses are going to be worried about his roles. Um, which is going to be interesting because he's now playing with the guards in Damian and CJ who have the ability to grab a defensive entrance from the three-point line, if that makes sense. So when Hassan says we've got shooters, he's thinking I can roll. He's going to be worried about those shooters. So I think Hassan is going to, and, and now he's going to have to set screens. And that's a whole different conversation. You know, he's not going to be able to, kind of slip as much as he wants or try and get the ball as much as he wants in Miami. But if he's locked in and he's setting screens, that's some put pressure on the defense because they're already worried about those guards coming off. Um, I think Zach showed an ability last year in the playoffs to be able to screen and roll. Now, his work is going to come in being able to make shots that put pressure on the defense. Um, you know, are they going to really pay attention to him if he pops? Are they going to be worried about him catching it, you know, maybe at the free throw line and being able to finish? That's where his growth is going to have to come from. But yeah, Anthony Tolliver, that's a pick and pop guy. That's something that we just haven't had a ton of. Um, so they have a little bit more versatility, and I don't think they're going to be sacrificing too much, but it's going to carry a lot of Hassan back to be able to screen and roll and screen and roll and do it multiple times. Yeah, I, I worry about all of those um... – series is again like back to you know what Myers Leonard would do where he would set screen after screen after screen with no thought that he was actually necessarily going to get the ball back and so I'm hoping that the 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 new guys on the team who are screening are okay with that type of a situation um you you brought up Zach Collins and one area of growth for him I think uh that we're going to see this year also is in staying out of foul trouble. Uh, and I, I like a couple of weeks ago, I went and I watched every one of Zach Collins's turnovers for the last, uh, last season. And a lot of them were, you know, uh, putting his hand, his, his legs out too wide on screens. They were, they were, a lot of them were screen related. So what types of things can we watch for in terms of telling whether or not he's developing and moving forward in that arena, like setting better screens and not getting called for those fouls? I like that question. Um, footwork and getting into position early. So part of it is just staying in that position and, and being in the right spot to screen instead of going to a place and now you got to try and reach and lean and kick out to try and get a piece of the guy. So it's just kind of finding the guy, finding the angle, planting your feet, and then being ready to roll. Um, that'll avoid some of those illegal screens. Um, it's going to be anticipating and developing that chemistry with his guards to where, okay, I, I know where I need to go. I know not where I need to be. I know how he's coming off timing-wise. And, and that really just comes with more repetition. Um, to be a really good screener, 
in this league, uh, it's an underrated quality. You know, a lot of people just think about the finishes, but you got to put yourself in a position to know, okay, are my feet set? Am I ready to get a screen set? Uh, you know, there's certain tells that you can't do as far as leaning your arms out, leaning your legs out. They're going to call that pretty much automatically, but you can get away with some stuff. I know Kaner did. It's being a little bit more shifty and playing that mind game uh, and, and knowing what you can get away with and what you can't. Do you think that's something that Powell was successful at, that he could, you know, download a bit, a bit of that information into Zach Collins' brain? My first thought when they signed Powell was he's there to mentor Zach Collins. I know that's probably not all of it, but that's going to help him a lot. Um, Powell's seen everything. Powell's done everything. Powell has probably executed every pick and roll that you possibly can on both sides of it. So that's going to help him in a huge way. Um, I think that goes underrated uh, for Zach's development. But it really just is going to come down to uh, him continuing to understand what he needs to do in those screen situations. Oh, Steve, we've talked a lot about the starting lineup duo, Zach, Kassan. Um, but I, I think the, the key to this year, because you, you know what you're going to get from Damon CJ, right? Like, I think everybody understands that the baseline for success with those guys on the floor and healthy this isn't a team that's going to fall down to the lottery. Like it would take an act of God for something like that to happen. So what I want to know is when you take a look at this team, their bench has been kind of up and down. We'll call it that. Again, we're looking at a young guy in Anthony Simons. Um, It's really been kind of telegraphed as uh, a guy who's going to get a lot of uh, shine, so to speak. And, when you're looking at a team like Portland that's going to be relying on two very young guys, uh, Collins in the starting lineup, Simons with, with the with the bench unit, what are you looking at as far as like a, a projection or the, the things to kind of monitor for, for a young guy like Simons kind of working with and co-leading that second unit into a successful fashion? I think the biggest thing you're going to be looking for uh, when, when talking about Simons is just his consistency and his ability to run that second unit. Um, the Blazers do run a lot of movement, so it's not like he's going to have to carry the brunt unless he's ready for it. But getting into sets, being able to defend, being able to cut and get guys the ball, um, I think the key to the Blazers' success has always relied on their bench. When their bench unit is going, they're really tough to handle. And when their bench unit is struggling, they can get ugly real quick so um, <laughs> I think I think for, for Simon it's just knowing the spots getting in making quick decisions um, you know knowing he doesn't have to do too much and, and just playing within himself and letting that grow naturally if that makes sense um, and then I think it's only going to help him because he's going to get consistent minutes um, that's going to allow for a little bit of growth and a little bit more development um, it's a little bit tougher when you're in and out of the rotation maybe you're playing five minutes here one I've got for you, Steve, when, when you're taking a look at this team, uh, everything that I've been able to gather is that they, they aren't done. Uh, the trade deadline is going to be 
a, a big time move for them with the expiring deals with Bazemore, with Whiteside, Nurkic hopefully coming back at that point in time. Something Tara and I have discussed is just I, I don't think the Blazers Wait, obviously. Is the Kevin Love question? It's it's getting it's getting there. We don't we don't. Dan is working on being able to talk. I, about I'm, I'm, I, I, I am I am not pro pro Kevin Love. Um, but when you look at this team and you look at the the things that they're likely to do, what is what is the move that you see for them? It doesn't have to be Kevin Love. There there, there are other guys. Hopefully, other guys out there. Well, also the amount that, of that full press sense. social media that is trying to make it happen. Uh, yeah, CJ and Kevin going you know wine tasting together. So yeah. Um, but when you look at this team, it, it's not it's not fully formed, and then there's an opportunity there. What is it that you're looking for for this team to really add to their roster to kind of make it come together to to solidify? Um, their position in, in this iteration of the Blazers? Well, the moon is coming love, but since I can't use that, um, <laughs> likely you're wanting to get either a really, really good wing or a really good big who can pick and pop. Those two things take the team to a different level. So if you have a guy who can play the three and the four, who can score on the wing and create plays, now you got three playmakers, James CJ and some of the size, you're a whole different team. If you can get, I won't say Kevin Love, if you can, you, you can say it. If you if you think it's the right one, you, you go ahead and you you go ahead and stick by it. Don't don't let me influence no, you at all. I refuse to be offensive on a, uh, on a great day like this. Kevin Love type who can score the ball, who can pick and pop, who can post up and be using those different ways. Those would probably be the two types of players that I would say take the team to the next level. I don't know that they need to go ahead and get a five. I think they're going to be fine there. I'm, I'm not sure that they need any more quote-unquote depth. Um, so to me, I think about what helps gaming CJ the most. They either get a really good win, take a little bit of pressure off them, or they get a big that can pick and pop, that can also roll, that can maybe play four and five. Um, that's going to make defenses really have a tough time because now your pick and roll goes to a different level when you don't know what's going to happen. You know, imagine say we're getting CJ to come off the screen, you don't know if it's going to be a pop, you don't know if it's going to be a roll, you don't know if they're going to score. That unpredictability is something the Blazers should strive to try and get to. And I don't know if they make a move, but... Um, if you're talking about getting them to the next level, they can do that ceiling. Those are probably the two type of players I'd be looking at. How, how important do you think it is it for have a, a a big who can shoot threes? Like, you know, sometimes like we see the Hassan Whiteside on Instagram shooting threes and, you know, everybody's <laughs> everybody tries it. A Summer couple workout times. videos. Right. I mean, people try it a couple of times and then they usually go away, but like, you know, how important do you think it is? It seems like, you know, with the evolution of the game, that is a serious consideration. We're going to see some step back corner threes from Clint Capella's and saw on white sides of the world now. No, no, we're not. Yeah, I hope not. Hopefully we're not shooting step back corner threes. Um, no, it's, it's an interesting point. Those kind of bigs probably don't need it. And they probably feel like they do but they're such good rollers that they probably should mess it. But what I would say back to your question is when you have a big that can do that, it allows you to do more things offensively. You can now space that big and run a different action with a different player. Um, 
say last year, um, Zach Collins is a dead-eye three-point shooter. They could put him at the five, and now you can use Amino as a screener and let him roll to the rim, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Kind of like how the Golden State would use Draymond as a quote-unquote five around shooters. So now he becomes a threat because he's rolling to the rim and making plays. That allows you to do more things and keep your size, too, not just going small all the time. Um, it allows you to have more versatility in the pick and roll. Um, so now, yeah, I can roll, but you don't know if I'm going to roll every time. Um, you look at Brooke Lopez and part of what he's done to take a leap, not just the ability to shoot and, and hit a trail three or space the floor and open things up for your guards, but he can still roll, but he can pop. So now as, as a defender, you're concentrating on trying to help your guard, but you're also in the back of your head thinking, man, I need to get back to my guy. Is he popping? So now that puts doubt in the defensive head. So it's not the most important thing for a big to have, but it really pops and adds value to that player and to that team when you can kind of mess around with them and keep your offense the same, but put your big out on the wing and put your big out in the corner and just you kind of learn some of the same things. So it sounds like you look at it as a luxury, not so much a necessity, at least these days. It's not a necessity. It's it's definitely closer to a luxury and um, a skill set that only makes you better. Mm -hmm. You know, you can make it work without it, but if you have that, now you can do so much more. Right on. Well, it's time for us to wrap it up. It's been really great talking to you and uh, asking you all these questions. I've, I'm feeling a little bit about, it, about it, a few things. Uh, I'm going to go back and watch some of your Twitter, Twitter th- threads again and refer back, especially to the ones that you did about the, the Denver series. They were super instructional. Um, would you? Can you tell folks how they can find you on Twitter so that they can also enjoy those? Follow me on Twitter at SteveJones20, at SteveJones20, just the numbers, not the words. Wonderful. Thank you so much for joining us today, Steve. Really appreciate it. Uh, Dan, do you want to go ahead and take us out of here? Yeah, uh, you can find uh, actually Tara. Go ahead, and let let everybody know where they, can, where they can find you in the What Podcast. Then I'll take us out of here. Yeah, you bet. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at TCB Biggs. You can follow uh, the Blazers Edge Podcast. Um, um at Blazers Edge, and you can follow the Women's Hoops and Talks podcast at Hoops and Talks. We've been uh, consistently putting out episodes throughout the offseason. Hopefully we'll be able to do it. I don't know. It's getting down to trying to get one ready for this week. (laughs) But uh, (laughs) if you go to the Blazers Edge podcast feed and subscribe there, you will definitely get everything that we put out from both the weekly podcast, this weekly podcast, and the Women's Hoops and Talks podcast. So, uh, yeah, that'll do it for me. Go ahead, Dan. All right. You can find me on social media at DMarang at D-M-A-R-A-N-G. Uh, you can find Joe, Shane, and I on Blazers Outsiders, NBC Sports Northwest, Thursday nights in the offseason. Uh, we do have Casey Holdall coming on the show. And more importantly, this week, we have Blazers Edge's own Steve DeWald coming on to make his television debut. Uh, and we're trying to work to get a couple other guys to come in this summer uh, while it's easier to get a hold of everybody else. So uh, stay tuned for that. But for Steve, thank you again for once for joining us. Uh, Tara and myself. We'll go ahead and get you guys next week. Bye.